What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, it is Tim Sawyer from Visual Discrimination. So stay tuned for that. It is a great interview with a great dude, and I think you're going to like it. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take the time to rate it and review it. I do not know why, but that matters when it comes to the pod getting traction and so forth when people are searching on stuff. Also, 185milesouth.com. That is the website. It's got all our links there. Also, there is a playlist for every episode. So check that out. If you want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185milesouth. We do bonus podcasts on there a couple times a month. And the support is what keeps this podcast alive. But let's get on with the show. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we have Tim Sawyer from Visual Discrimination. What's up, Tim? Not much, man. Just hanging out at work, uh, being a lazy butt right now, dealing with you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. How do you get into punk and hardcore? Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm a little li- different than most guys that uh, you've done recently, and, and I'm a little older, too. So uh, I think I really took interest around 78, 79. Uh, one of my older cousins got me, uh, kind of got me hooked on uh, alternative style of music or, or new wave or whatever. You know, he was listening to stuff like... Uh, UK subs and ultra Vox and stuff like that. And I kind of found it interesting. It was totally different than anything I'd ever heard before in my household. So yeah, I, he kind of, he kind of swayed me a little bit towards that music. He, uh, he was really into that stuff and, and it kind of, uh, took a foothold with me. What was some of the early stuff that stood out to you the most? Um, I think, you know, like, I, I think I'm going to go along with a million other people and say that, you know, the first time I'm seeing like Black Flag or, or the Circle Jerks is pretty special. And I'm I'm leaning more towards the Black Flag, uh, early Henry era. Um, but uh, I, I was, I seen a few bands before that. I, I seen uh, my cousin that actually got me into the music. He tried out for that band, uh, L.A. punk band called No Crisis. And they, uh, so I saw them perform live in a, in a high school auditorium and my cousin trying out for them. And that, and that was the first time I seen a band live and that was 79. And, uh, it really, uh, it was really cool. It was just different. I had goosebumps and, you know, I could feel, you know, adrenaline going. I was like, this is really cool. I was like 16, you know, really digging it. Yeah. Talk about some of your uh, early first shows that you went to like seeing black flag so early because it's hard to find people to paint this picture. Uh, you know, it, it, I really didn't in high school, there was like three punk rockers where I went to high school and I graduated in 82. So like I said, I'm a lot older than most of the guys you've been interviewing lately. And, uh, 
so yeah, I, I was going to shows in 1980, 81. And, uh, I got, I got the chance to see a lot of really cool bands and, and black flag was one of them. And that was one of my earlier shows. And I saw them play at the Vex in LA. Um, on that particular bill, I believe it was, uh, Oh man, I think it was like Nig Heist and Black Flag and um oh man. Oh I, I won't press you to remember more than Black yeah. Flag. So <laughs> Yeah, that, that's all that mattered that evening, really. Right. <laughs> what like what was it like? Because you know, you seen like your your cousin try out for a band and you know that like this music is intense live, but then you see like literally one of the heavyweights in their hometown you know, in what some people would argue would be their prime. Like, what is that like? And what's the crowd like? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was early Henry. So a lot of people are getting used to his uh, stage antics and the guy t- to say the least, he was intense, you know? And, uh, it was, uh, I-, I think it left a lot of people with their jaws on the floor, you know, watching him perform. Um, but yeah, the room was just, it was just a, uh, it was during uh, the, our first real bad uh, El Nino, and it was raining really bad, and the, and the doors in the back were leaking in. There was, like, mud all over the floor, and it was just a really intense scene watching uh, Henry roll around in the mud and, and doing Scream, you know? It was, like, one of my early shows. I was, like, you know, you're, it's a mix of uh, fear, uh, you know, <laughs> excitement, and uh, it's kind of all all put into one. You're just, like your body's a buzz just buzzing with the energy in the room. And it, it was special. It was something I'll never forget. When you start getting your footing where like some of that nervousness goes away and like, you really feel like you're a participant in the scene. Uh, wow. That's, that's a good question because I, I didn't have a lot of friends that were into punk rock. Um, most of my friends in high school were all like jocks and, and, uh, and it was, uh, some of them liked like new wave stuff. And, and so I was able to sway a couple to go see Oingo Boingo play with fear and in a, in a uh, circus tent. And uh, that kind of got them leaning my way a little bit and want, wanting to go to more shows. That first, that was a first for them. That was like 80. Oh, in the fall of 81 and Oingo Boingo was really hitting, hitting hard. They were a big, you know, a big act now. And uh, they opened for fear and, and for good reason, you know, the fear, fear just brings out the intensity and uh, just crazy craziness it shows back then. And uh, he loved, Lee loved getting people riled up. And, and so the crowd was just absolute mayhem from the first note with them. And my friends were standing in the, in the pit area with me. And as soon as they hit the first note, it was just mass chaos and slamming. And I think there was like eight, eight friends with me and they, I think three of them lost shoes and <laughs> I couldn't find them. I, was, I looked up in the bleachers and they were like the top, the top row in the bleachers, like scared shitless. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but getting, getting comfortable and getting a footing in the scene where I felt comfortable, it, it, it took a couple of years because I really didn't hang out with anybody that really went to a lot of shows. And so I would have to drag somebody with me, you know, that didn't really know what was going on with myself although I did a few times and uh, I moved my uh, I moved in the summer between my junior and my senior year in high school. So it was like 81 in the, in the summer. And uh, 
my neighbor across the street was kind of a famous punk rocker in Orange County. He is, they called him Chris Crass. And he was in like the, the Cuckoo's Nest documentaries. And, and so he, uh, I latched onto him and started going to shows all over. And I really felt comfortable because he, he knew a lot of people in bands and he was really good friends with people from the middle class. And so I, I hung out a lot with them. Um, and, uh, Lost Cause, an old orange band. Um, so I was hanging out with people in the band. So I felt I, the confidence level jumped, you know, tremendously at that point. Can you tell a difference between the, like these little micro scenes? Because one thing we've tried to document <clears throat> on the podcast is like coming out of like the early LA scene and then going into like the, the Orange County bands coming up, you know, and, and the South Bay and all this stuff rising, like where, things start getting more intense and the crowds start getting gnarlier and more lively. Um, are you seeing this happen or do you think that it, it's already like, it's like that by the time you're involved? Um, it had a different feel, you know, like when you went into those different areas, it was a different, uh, just kind of a different vibe. And uh, there was like, I, I mean, early on, I really didn't see it, but later on looking back, there was like a little competition that seemed like to me, like who could be the, the craziest, gnarliest, you know, get the craziest pits and stuff. And, you know, and, and that like kind of, I think the, the violence kind of grew out of that, you know, of course the gangs were part of that, but it was, it was a violent scene back then. I mean, it was just really crazy. And the gangs coming in that kind of, you know, just intensified everything, you know, it just got worse. Yeah, can you kind of compare though, like uh, maybe like the Valley in LA and Orange County, like separately? Do they feel different? Um, yeah, yeah. LA was always uh, it always seemed like a, more of a big production type thing, um, and it just was a more you know the, the Olympic and you know the Palladium and Florentine Gardens and there was a lot of shows at those big places back then, and it, so it always seemed like a big production when we were going to shows. I mean, I went to the smaller ones like like the Vex and and uh, you know Cathedral uh, uh, Grand and and those were fun and it was really really cool. But yeah, the Valley I didn't I didn't hang out much in the Valley. Um, uh, South Bay a little bit. It was uh, it seemed more South Bay seemed really cliquish, like really like more aloof than any anywhere else. And that's kind of funny because Orange County you would get the impression it would be Orange County. It would be like that, but it, re- it really wasn't. It was, it seemed like uh, the South Bay was a lot more aloof than anywhere else. When do you start? Orange, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Orange County. It was, uh, it was really cool because Orange County, you had all the, the greats that came from there, you know, that early on. And, and, uh, and that was one thing. But when they started making the progression from punk rock into kind of hardcore and all these bands started playing, and doing the hardcore thing, it was uh, more of a family feel. I mean, everybody was friends, and we got along great. And you know, and I may be jumping the gun a little bit, going a little fo- too far forward. But like, there was a lot of us that were really good friends. We'd do stuff away from the scene. We go play basketball, or you know, hang, just hang out, go eat. And it was really, really a tight knit scene. There was some competition there, you know, and there always is. I think in every every genre of music, there probably is. But uh, it was, wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, it, we were all friends first. How do you, how do you view like the rise of, of the gangs? And is that mostly like an LA thing? Is that branch in Orange County as well? Uh, it, 
You know, it really, uh, it seemed like LA County, um, was more of a, you know, like I said earlier, like a bigger production, like a bigger stage. So it seemed like, you know, you got a bigger audience. So it seemed like there was more, you know, like more, uh, I don't know, you know, flexing your muscles in LA, so to speak, I guess, you know, so all the gangs are coming out and certain shows you'd have certain gangs and certain shows you wouldn't. And, uh, certain areas, you know I mean, like Fenders is, is really a long ways from Los Angeles where all the shows were happening, like in LA and Hollywood. Fenders was a long ways away from that. I mean, like 40 miles. So it's quite a, quite a different, different, uh, scene really. Long Beach was cool. You had Fenders, had uh, the Melody Dance Theater, and those those the gangs that were there were more like uh, lads of suicidals. Um, LMP, the Long Rata Punks came down once in a while, but you didn't see them too often. They stayed more up towards like Whittier and Long Rata, Santa Fe Springs, and but you did have them at shows, but just not as plentiful as like the lads or or uh, like Circle One in LA and. Uh, Tense is more like in LA or Long Beach. And... Are the majority of like these people into the music, or are they just there to like be you there know, for violence? You know, I, from listening to a lot of the podcasts, there, you know, a lot of people have a, a take on the gang violence, and I, I can tell you this: I, I know a lot of those guys. Um, there's a lot in prison now, a lot dead, and there's a lot, you know, doing the regular, you know. <laughs> five days, 40 hours a week job thing and having the careers. And, and I still talk to a lot of the guys from different, different gangs and, and the, yeah, they all love the music. All the guys I know all love the music. Um, and matter of fact, a lot of them have done bands. So yeah, I, it wasn't just uh, Hey, let's go, you know, thump on some people or fuck somebody up. It was like, they were into the music. Yeah. That's, that's a picture that never really gets painted. I think. You know, so it's yeah. important to have people that were there kind of like speak on it. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. There, I mean, it was, don't get me wrong. It was, it was violent. It was ugly. Um, after a while, you know, I just, uh, you know, I've heard a couple people say it like, Hey man, you just kind of keep to yourself and steer clear of it. And you're kind of okay, but you really, you're never okay. Um, it, it's just who catches you in their crosshairs and decides they want to, you know, make an example out of you and, and uh, for whatever reason, just uh, up their status or whatever, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I, but I know a lot of the guys and there's a lot of really good guys who are involved in some of that stuff, you know? When do you decide to like go on from being a fan to wanting to do a band of your own? Uh, that would have been like 84. I, I mean, I was, I was writing lyrics before that, like in 81, 82, I started writing lyrics and I knew I wanted to perform. I mean, it was, I'm not going to lie. Henry Rollins was a big influence on me. And uh, I loved the way he performed and, and loved his energy. And uh, so I started writing in like 81 or 82. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically, I got zero coordination as far as playing instruments. So that's the last thing I would ever want to do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I started really wanting to be in a band about 84. And then, uh, not too long after really thinking about it and trying to figure out who was going to do what, uh, my brother was jamming. Uh, my brother Byron Bailey was jamming with Steve and Steve Winders and Jeff Banks, and uh, they were doing this thing, just kind of a garage thing. And 
And so out of the blue, he asked me one day, he goes, hey, man, you want to sing for us? I'm like, sure, why not? And so we started jamming. And from the first jam we ever did was in my parents' garage. And and uh, it was uh, it was really cool. I, I like I love Jeff and Steve. I mean, to this day, we talk, you know, not every day, but close. We're, uh, we're really good friends. And, and it's been that way for, shoot, I mean, going on 40 years is crazy. Yeah, you do an initial you do an initial run with uh, visual discrimination, and then you break into two bands before you merge back together. It breaks yeah. into nonfiction and denial. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. Um, and that was that was uh, you know I don't really know what happened there. It was so weird. Um, you know, maybe just maybe attitudes or differences in opinions or something. I don't know. Um, you know, I was I was more I like more of the. Uh, you know, D beat type, uh, you know, cross punk stuff. And, and, uh, Jeff and Steve were kind of digging the, you know, they were big, huge, you know, from choice fans. And, and when they came out there, I mean, I was too, they were incredible, but, uh, that's what kind of what direction they wanted to go. And, they, and so they did it and they played a couple parties. I think we played a couple shows and a couple parties and, and, uh, we went to a party they played one night and, uh, and I remember watching the play and I dug them. I mean, I love, we use some of those songs to record and, and uh, as well as some of the non nonfiction songs. And uh, uh, I really loved their songs. They didn't want to play them. They didn't want to record them. They wanted to play the nonfiction songs. And we were like, we don't want to play those. <laughs> so it was such a, it was such a weird transition coming back together because both of us were, did the opposite of what we broke up in the first place for you know, we we, right. we wanted wanted to play their style of music, and they wanted to play our style. So we just put everything together and kind of just mixed it up and and did a little of each. Yeah, I mean that's why it's so cool. Is like you start a band, it breaks into two bands, then you get back together and you have all the songs on the first VD record. It's so rad. <laughs> I was I was so stoked to get back together with these guys. You know, I loved them forever, and uh, to be able to play their songs that I loved. I was like, this is going to be great. And and they were doing the same thing about our stuff and about the nonfiction stuff. And <laughs> it just worked out. It was so weird and wild the way it came back together and just the way everything worked out. Yeah. So fun. Um, I want to do a quick sidebar just because you mentioned uniform choice. Can you talk about like them, like kind of exploding on the scene and what it did to like the area? Oh man, what a huge impact they had. They, um, it seemed like it was just overnight. Like somebody had a light switch. Um, I saw them play at the, uh, it wasn't the cuckoo's nest anymore. They called it the concert factory. And I saw them play there. They opened up for fear. And the first thing I thought was, Oh man, this guy, you know, this guy singing, he reminds me of Henry, big bald head, big guy, you know? I'm going, oh man, this is great. And you know, and I love Minor Threat, but I just wasn't a giant fan, but I love their music, but I wasn't some monster fan. And I really didn't, I didn't really even straight edge wasn't talked about really, you know, back then. It wasn't really a thing, you know. And uh so seeing them the first time I saw them play with fear at the old Cuckoo's Nest, and it was I was, you know, I I saw my, I was telling everybody, oh man, I saw those bands are great, and they really hadn't broken yet, you know, they nobody knew who they were yet, and then it seemed like somebody just hit a light switch and they were playing everywhere, and the music was so intense and just different than everything else. It had it just it just drove you, 
you know, wild, just you could adrenaline pumping, just going crazy, jumping all over the stage. It seemed like their stuff livened up the crowd a lot, a lot more than normally with other bands. And it seemed they seemed to, I mean, they were cool guys. They're real easy to talk to. And, and um, it seemed like once they got a foothold and really blew up, that a lot of bands wanted to do what they were doing. You know, like, oh man, this is cool. And being a regional band and being from this, you know, Orange County, all these people in the local area were more apt to want to do something like, you know, the straight edge thing than as to say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a minor threat fan. I want to do straight edge because it really, it, that was a regional thing. It wasn't really a Southern California thing. And so being that Uniform Choice was, a, you know, one of our, you know, one of our local bands in Orange County, it just, it made so many kids just want to do what they were doing. Yeah. So, so rad. Was there an impact? Like, do you think it was the shows that were the biggest impact or was it like the demo comes out and people are like, Oh my God, or the LP comes out and people are like, Oh my God, or is um, it like a combination of everything? Yeah, I think it was a combination of everything. The demo was great. And then when the album hit, it was just like they hit, like they hit like uh, overdrive and it was like, wow, this is, this is craziness. And I mean, almost everybody that I hung out with were like, Oh my God. <laughs> this is brilliant, you know, and and it was just they were great. We had yeah. the opportunity to play with them in San Diego, and it was it was wild because San Diego had a really bad crowd at that time. They were real violent, and they were they were beating up bands from out of town. It was kind of a locals only thing, and and they they started in on on Pat uh, Dubar backstage, and we were back there, and it it got it was really wild. It got crazy. And uh, so everything broke up and then they got on stage and uh, he was mid scream on a song. And some guy comes out of the crowd and just, just drills him. And then it was on again. So, you know, we're all in there in the mix and, and it finally breaks up and get everything set situated and separated. And a bunch of people got kicked out, but what a wild night, man. It was, it was with dissension and, and asexuals and, and uh, Oh man. Uh, Local band uh, from down there, can't remember the name, uh, slipped my mind. But anyhow, yeah. And back then, the shows were really uh, varied in the styles too. And so, but at that time when they started hitting, they started hitting on all cylinders. It was like everybody wanted to be, you know, I want to be like Uniform Choice. These guys are great. <laughs> yeah, I just I can't imagine like a band being that great and then having an album come out and having to be that good. Like it's still yeah. mind blowing to me. I'm sad I missed it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's all. That's all we talked about for months at practice was, oh my god, uniform <laughs> choice, and we just right. talked about it, talked about it all the time. We're probably talking more about uniform choice than any of our stuff we were doing. Do you have a take on why San Diego is so violent? You know, I don't. Um, and we played there a few times, but I really don't. Um, you know, all I know is that when we went down there. We went down there with a lot of people. Um, we didn't go down, you know, by ourselves. There's, we played a show with Excel and POW. Um, do you know who those, who they were? I do not. PO, Lance, you know, Lance Weber. I do not. Okay. Uh, he's, he's saying for, I believe he's saying for ignite for a little, not ignite. Um, what was the other band Foster did? That was kind of like, uh, unity. It was, no, it was a real short-lived, uh, so, oh, was it, it was with, 
He's done a million bands. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's we're, like we're, gonna have, we're gonna have one release. Yeah, one one re- run record, and, he, and he's done, and wants to do something else. Yeah, I mean, I think everything he's done pretty decent, um, or pretty good. There was a couple things recently that I thought was wasn't very good, but so anyhow, yeah, Lance Weber's an old school guy. He's he's in L.A. and and his band POW. POW were great. We played our very first show, BD show with those guys and they played and, and Santa Claus and a couple other bands. And anyhow, we went down there with like five corners of people because the promoter had called me the night before and said, Hey, um, the show's still on, but I, I really suggest uh, or advise you guys against coming down. He said, it's just too violent. Uh, last night, the vandals got beat up and they stole all their equipment and, he said, so you, you, I really don't want to see you guys get hurt. <laughs> and that's all I had to say. I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> right. So we, we went down with like five carloads of friends and we were hanging out in the parking lot, listening to the Dodger game. And it was the night that Kirk Gibson hit that miraculous home run, you know, limping around yeah. the bases. Uh, that was the night, man. It was, uh, we're out in the parking lot listening to that game. And uh, so that night, listening to that game lance weber comes out and goes hey man these guys are we're getting beat up in there our friends are getting beat up and can you help us and we said sure so we went in and you know the vd army it was just friends it wasn't a gang or nothing it was just friends that you know you know might have grown up in rough neighborhoods and might have been a little tougher than some of the other people but uh we're just you know we just if we were fighting we were fighting for what we thought was right and uh so we went in and kind of watched what was going on. And these guys were taking pot shots left and right at people and at the band. And so some of the guys just said, ah, we'll put an end to this. And so they stepped up and started taking care of business. And at the end of the night, there was blood everywhere and all those guys were gone. <laughs> so, so, and the show went on, <laughs> but I don't know why it was so violent down there. It was, it was weird. It, it, we played down there, I think, five or six times, and it was that way every time. Yeah, we've talked about it sometimes on the pod, and it might just be that it's like a convergence of, you know, you have like so much military, then you have like the beach culture, plus we have like the the East County culture, which would have been like, you know, like kind of yeah. desert type people, you know, right, right. kind of like within 40 minutes of each other. And if they all come in one room and people are getting aggro, I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's a... It's a lot of, of a, a lot of tinder there. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a that's a great thought, man. I never really thought about it like that, but you, you're probably right on the money with that. Well, right there on. There wasn't a whole lot of there wasn't a whole lot of big shows down there. I mean, there or they had the Jackie Robinson Center, I think, and a couple others, and but uh, it seemed like the shows down there were kind of few and far between. And so you're right, man. All, all that aggression kind of built up, and you had that melting pot of people and. And it was just that didn't mix well. Right. Right. Let's talk about, so you guys get back to that back together and you do visual discrimination and you don't demo, you go straight into LP, right? Cause you've done like kind of the demoing before with the two bands and you're just ready um, to go and do an LP. No, actually we did a demo with both the bands. And then when we reformed, we did a, we did a demo with, with BD and uh, I think it was 12 songs. And I believe all those songs made the album. Maybe, maybe one didn't, but yeah, we, we did do a demo with VD and uh, there's probably a million of them out there. We sold so many stupid things. Uh, 
but yeah, we did the demo and then, uh, it wasn't too long after the demo that we, we said, Hey, let's go, let's go record, let's record some music and put a, we'll put a seven inch out. And so we said, Oh yeah, let's do it. So we went, you know, to uh spot recording, which was like, we're half off as recording and, and some other bands that we knew were recording there. And we only went there because our friends' bands were recording there. And when we got in there, uh, it seemed like the engineer had as much knowledge about recording stuff than, as we did, which was <laughs> nothing, you know, zero. <laughs> right. And uh, so we recorded, I don't know, uh, eight, nine songs. And, and uh, we're all happy and we're going to do a record, but we really didn't know how to promote or how to push it and, and try to get a label to get on board with us or try to, you know, we didn't have a lot of really good connections as far as label people went. And so we're in the meantime, you know, while we're him hawing around trying to decide what we're going to do with that recording, we start writing some new songs that we really dig. And we're like, hey, let's go record these. And while we're here, we might as well record these other ones. And so that was, <laughs> we mixed those two together as, you know, one, recording i guess we were six months apart or something so we had made up a lot a lot of more a lot newer uh material in that six months time so they said let's just just record that too and and just uh we'll try to do a full length and so then we started pushing it and we got uh a lot of responses back and probably our our biggest mistake ever was uh turning down Pusshead because Pusshead told us he wanted to do a seven inch with us on Pussmort. And us being younger and wanting to put out it, we wanted to put a full length out, man. And he's like, I, I really don't think you should do a full length first. I think you should do a seven inch. And we said, yeah, well, all right. Well, thanks for the offer. <laughs> we're going to keep looking. And <laughs> we were idiots. We were complete idiots. We should have just said, yeah, let's do it. I mean, that would have been rad, but being Nemesis Records number one is pretty ill. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not disappointed in that one bit. I, I love Big Frank. I think that label was just incredible. And uh, it was a great experience. We we finally decided on, uh, it's funny, I was going through some uh, old boxes of stuff, you know, and I, I used to save everything. And I'm going through these boxes, and I found a letter from uh, uh, BYO, from from uh, Sean Stern. <laughs> and and we had sent our stuff to him, and he, he basically just said no. <laughs> he wrote a letter, and he, he put it in kind of nice words, but he's like, no. Uh, your style's not what we're really looking for. <laughs> and it was just basically a, a big denial. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, I, 88's I, a weird I, year for them though. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that really was. They had, they had changed so much. Um, uh, sorry to yeah. cut you. I'm sorry. No, I said, sorry to cut you off though. Oh, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So anyhow, digging through that stuff, I found that. I found some other letters that we had sent out and, we got returned. <laughs> it was just kind of hilarious. You know, we're young, didn't know what we were doing. But uh, we decided on National Trust. They had uh, like the instigators and they had uh, Don't Know and they did uh, a Vandals record. And, and uh, man, they did, I mean, did some really good stuff. And so we're like, yeah, let's go that way. You know, let's go with them. And um, he did the Love Canal, who we love those guys. Those guys were cool as hell. And, um, yeah, let's go that way. So we basically gave him everything done. It was done, ready to, ready to press, ready, ready for everything. Art ready, you know, Kirk Dominguez, um, who did the fanzine straight from the grave SFTG. 
And then he went to Flipside, and you know he's he's a well known photographer. He uh, in the early days he he shot everything of us, everything we did. He was with us and shot it. And so him and I uh, did all the layout for the album for the Step Back album. We did all that layout at an ROP class. And uh, I say him and I, he did about 98% of it. And uh, so that's how we gave him camera ready art at National Trust. And and then, you know, for a couple of months, you know, we, we figured it was going to be three or four months. And for a couple of months, he just, you know, yeah, I'm working on it. You know, don't worry. It's, it's coming along fine. And we're like, okay. And we're anxious, you know, to get the shit out. And, and then it got to where he wouldn't, he wouldn't answer the phone anymore. Then we'd call, he owned a record shop at Huntington Beach. And we'd call there and his dad would always answer. And he's like, it was a running joke with the band. You know, we'd call and the dad would say, pop culture, may I help you? And we'd say, he's Ron there. And he'd say, no, he's not. <laughs> Do you know when he's going to come back? No, I don't. And it was the same every time. And so I think uh, we finally, after about six months of dealing with this, we went down to the shop and he wasn't there. His dad was there. And we threatened his dad and told him, hey, listen, we're going to whoop your ass and destroy this record store if you don't give us his address. Because we went in the back rooms, we're digging through closets, looking for our stuff. And uh, I said, all he needs is address. We want to get our stuff back. And that's all we care about. And he's like, okay, well, here it is. And he goes, it's just around the corner. And he goes, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, he's, you know, his dad's like ashamed of him. He's like, he's kind of a mess right now. <laughs> <laughs> And the guy was a, a big cokehead. And this was so, he was so spun out. And so we go to his address. He's not there. His roommate's there. So now we have to threaten somebody else. And he ends up giving us a number where we can reach him at. And we call him and say, listen, we're going to tear apart this house and, and take your friend with us and bury him in the desert. <laughs> and so he said, okay, well, I'll meet you back at the house. I got some stuff and some stuff I don't. And so he came and, um, a couple of us went with him to the print shop and got all our stuff back. And that guy didn't want to give it to us because he was owed money from previous projects from, from that label. So he didn't want to give it to us. And there's the, there's the thir- third uh, terroristic threat on us that day. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up giving us the stuff and, and, uh, and then we got all our stuff back from the pressing plant. And it, it was a, a lengthy battle with him. And, uh, got taken care of. And in the meantime, we had been bitching to Frank and they're like, man, we don't know what to do. And he's like, well, he goes, no, what? I, I know enough people. I think I can do this. And we're like, really? And he goes, yeah, I think I can do it. I said, so if I get all my stuff and give it to you, you can put a record out. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, he goes, I'll try. He goes, I think I can do it though. I know enough people. And I was like, bitching. <laughs> and it was uh, Steve Winders, Jeff Banks and myself that had gone down to visit him. And, and talk to him about it. And we looked at each other like, this is a no brainer. You know, you know, he's golden boy stage manager. <laughs> he's the manager at Zed records. He knows everybody, yeah. you know, everybody knows who big Frank is by sight. They say, oh, that's big Frank. Every he's a celebrity in the punk scene. And uh, so we went with it and it was like in no time it was out. I was like, wow, we're amazed. And, and getting a record in your hand for the first time, I know you know what it feels like. It, it's just re- something really cool. You know, it's a big accomplishment. You, you know, a lot of hard work, money. <laughs> it, it's just a, it's a long time coming, and it feels so good to have that in your hand. It so, never gets old either. 
No, uh -uh. you know, it's funny because, you know, Fred, Fred Hammer just repressed that in vain 12 inch. And I met him up, up near Magic Mountain and picked up some copies of the record. And I was like, man, I was just, I was <laughs> like a little, like a little schoolgirl, all giddy, you know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, when I got home, I'm opening them up and oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I usually can't wait that long. Like I'll pick up stuff <laughs> from Mandela or something. It's like, I'll drive a couple blocks away from his house and then I have to stop and look at everything, you know? Yeah. It's just different. You know, obviously you look at it like there, but it's yeah. like, no, I want to like dig in. Yeah. You want to rip it open and especially his stuff. He does such a great job. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so rad. And being Nemesis records, number one, I mean, what a killer label and he put out so much good stuff. It's so funny. I mean, the bands he had were such great bands. I mean, and, uh, and he was such a good dude, you know, and that's why he was able to get so many bands. He was such he was such a fair guy, man. He just would he all he wanted to do was help people out. And he was a gentle giant, man. He's a big, scary, imposing character, but he was really a gentle giant. The guy who had he had just a loving dude, man. He um the first time <laughs> I knew who Frank was, but he didn't know me. And uh I'd go on to the shows early early in the shows and and I got in a fight at Fenders. And I'll never forget. <laughs> my first experience with Frank was a fight at Fenders. And I got a guy on the ground. I got him in the headlock. And, and Frank picks me up by the seat of the pants and my neck. And he's got these big bear paws for hands. He's just a big dude. And uh, he picks me up by the, by the back of my neck and by my seat of my pants and kind of just shakes me loose of the guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what, what's going on? I, you know, I can't turn around. I can't fight back. I don't know what, what's happening. And he, he goes, knock it off. And he lets me, he stands me up. I look at him and go, oh shit. <laughs> and he's like, knock it off, dude. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And that was my first dealing with Frank. And then uh, seeing him at other shows, talking to him and, you know, talking about stuff. And he, I go, you don't remember me, do you? And he goes, no, no, no. And I go, Fender's about two weeks ago. And he picked me up and yelled at me. And he goes, Okay, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so when I go into Zed's, he'd, he'd, he'd look at me funny and give me the eye. And, <laughs> and so that was my first experience with Frank. That's great. Let's talk about the uh, going around and taking photos that would end up being like the album cover for uh, the first time. <laughs> what was that um, date like? I think Jeff was saying you went. You, you, took a, you took a long time taking photos. How do you settle we, on we, that one? Um, you know, that wasn't my first choice. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't even in my top 10, I don't think. Um, and I don't, they decided, I think Steve and Jeff decided. Everybody in the band, I mean, like Junior, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, Junior and Jeff Zimmerman, they were kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, if they felt real passionate about something, they'd have a say. And, it, and we'd listen to each other. We, we weren't like, oh, no, we're going to do it this way. You know, it was everybody's band. And, uh, but on the photo thing, it, I think it was more Jeff and Steve that wanted that one. And, uh, and so that wasn't my first choice. I said, Oh man, that kind of a corny, corny photo. out, you know, a picture for an album cover, you know, and they're going, Oh dude, I love this. And I'm like, Oh man. Uh, okay. Whatever. You know, I was, I'm like, I just want to see this record come out. <laughs> but that day, that the day that we took those photos, we got up like five in the morning and, uh, we traveled all over LA, Hollywood, Long Beach, uh, Huntington Beach. We were everywhere, all over the coast, downtown LA. And we took some photos that were pretty cool, but it probably wasn't really hardcore photos. I wouldn't, you know, picture on an album, but we took some pictures in downtown LA, like on 
on Main Street or Grand, and and it was like under these walkways, overhead walkways, and they turned out really cool. The sun was coming up, and it was weird angles and shadows, and look at some cool photos. And uh, I'm sure he's uh, Kurt's got them somewhere in his files, but those were some cool ones. I I wish I had some of those. Um, but yeah, we took pictures everywhere, and uh, so we they settled on that one. There was a couple others we took that were pretty cool. Um, and I got a few copies of those. So Kirk was nice enough to print me up some real big ones. And, and so I still got a few of those. Yeah, that covers ill. I think that, you know, you might just be worried about it because it might be the same as like listening to your own voice. You know, it's like yeah. hard to do sometimes, but it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. And looking at photos of yourself is kind of weird, but like being sick, dude, you, but you got to settle the con- the controversy though. Like how soon before the photo was taken, did you take your shirt off? <laughs> You know, I, I look at that photo and uh, it's funny because <laughs> it's funny because some people have posted, you know, pictures of that album on, on their social media. And so one of my friends posted it. He was listening to the record or whatever. And he posted it on Instagram. And Kirk said, you know, the funniest thing about this photo cover, he goes, and I'll, he goes, because somebody mentioned something like, dude, I don't, it's like one guy's wearing a sweater and one guy's wearing a sweatshirt. And this guy's got shorts with no shirt on. And I, I don't know what's going on. And uh, Kurt chimed in and said, you know, it's like my, my, one of my friends put it best. He said, I don't know what season it is in this picture. <laughs> it's Southern California. God damn it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like 70 it's always, degrees, a little bit of a breeze. And then just everyone has a different level of comfort. Some people want to be in yeah. a hoodie. Some people want to have no shirt on. Fuck it. Yeah. So on those pictures, uh, I think in the other pictures, I think the shirts came off right before that picture was taken. I think it was that that location the shirts came off, and uh, and Junior, rest in peace. That guy had a you know he had a body. That guy, yeah, he as he matured, he was like all just ripped and huge and buffed and you know. But later, way later on, he wasn't in the band any longer. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, he he looked a lot better with no shirt than I did. <laughs> Let's talk about this album coming out and what was the general response to it? Was it well received and how did the popularity of the band, like uh, how was it affected by it? Um, you know, uh, like I said earlier, we had, we had sold so many demos. It was crazy. So a lot of people knew our songs and it was, it was weird because certain areas we'd be well received and get a good crowd reaction and, and have participation other areas we wouldn't and uh but when the album you know actually when the album did come out it it, it seemed to it seemed to increase a little bit you know it it, it i mean it definitely helped and uh it, it seemed to increase a little bit but uh big frank had a lot to do with that too you know um he was getting us really good shows with big acts and uh our second, see, I got us, I got us our first show at Fenders with GBH. It was GBH and Poison Idea and Final Conflict, and we opened. And it, and the way I, <laughs> the way I got us this show was, I kept calling Golden Boys. I kept calling Paul, who was like the booker at the time, and I kept calling and calling. I call every day, two, three times a day. And he's like, dude, I, and we don't do that many shows. Like, you know, I talked to you two hours ago. I don't have anything. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And so I just did that. I pestered the hell out of him until he got sick of me and just like, yeah, dude, I got something. You want to play GBA? So I'm like, yeah. 
And he's like, okay, you got it. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I told the guys, I'd be freaking out. You know, we had played shows, but there were real little things, you know, nothing big. You know, backyard parties, garage parties, little shitty bar or something, you know, that was had food or something that could be all ages and there'd be, you know, 50 people in there or something. But that was our first, you know, really, really big show. So I got us that one. And it was just because <laughs> it's just because I happened to have that guy's number and I just drove him crazy. And then the next show we played there was with Exploited. The, that in this show was like one of the most incredible shows ever. We played with Exploited, uh, RKL Blast, Excel. And it was just, I mean, every one of those bands we loved, loved. I mean, like RKL was one of our favorite bands. Blast was one of our favorite bands. We loved Excel. Um, my my drummer Exploited was his favorite band. And, it was like, oh my God, you know, we and Frank landed us that show. So by virtue of having Frank as our as our label owner and him being a Golden Boy stage manager, he was able to land us some huge stuff. And so the record did help a little bit, but I think it was more Frank. Um I think I really do think it was more Frank than than the album. Um and, and our friends, you know, we had a million friends in other bands. And we all took care of each other, you know, I mean, like in fast and, and reason to believe and, and half off and instead and all these guys, we we're all friends, hard stance, you know, and, and we all took care of each other. And we put shows on, uh, you know, PHC, piss happy children. They, we all knew each other and we all took care of each other. If one of us were putting a show on, they would make sure to get a couple of the bands, you know, a couple of our, you know, bro bands, you know, that, that we were all friends. So that helped a lot too. We we played a lot that way and uh we just all took care of each other. What did it feel like to play in front of like a crowd that large at either of those fender shows? <laughs> um yeah, I think on the GBH was the first real real crowd I played in front of. And I'm like more of a uh more of a quiet reserved guy when I'm, you know, in the crowd with bands and stuff or I don't like crowds. I don't like crowds. I like my kids, they they didn't get to go to Disneyland with me with dad very often. They went like the last time I went there, they were like eight and four, and now they're thirty and twenty five. <laughs> so uh, I didn't like crowds. I was really uh, kind of reclusive, I guess. You know, I was kind of shy away from it. And playing on, I think I almost had a heart attack by the third song on stage. It was just my adrenaline was pumping so hard, and it just was something different. You know, I mean, you know, you get on stage and. And something just something that happens. I like when I when I'm on stage and I'm, we're playing. I, I don't really see anybody. I don't. I like I don't. And I, this may be bad. I don't know. I don't make eye contact with nobody really. I just kind of look through people. I, I don't. There's no emotional connection for me with a person in the crowd. I mean, as a whole, if the crowd's going crazy. I, I mean, I'm in love. Yeah, I love them. But I don't like. I I don't make a connection with any one person when I'm, when I'm performing and I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, I feel that it's easier to play in front of a lot of people than it is. Like, I mean, the hardest thing is playing to 20 people at a record store with the lights on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the absolute worst at that. I, I am horrible at that. And you gotta, you gotta plug through it, pull that plow through it, try to try to do your best and your, and you know your heart's not in it because there's just nobody there and you're bummed and and uh but yeah I'm probably one of the worst guys at that and I'm, you know so like as I'm getting older I try to 
see the positives of things <laughs> yeah, and, sure. and not be so bummed. We have more fun just jamming than we and recording than we do playing live sometimes. You know, just just being together is is fun. Yeah, I feel that. Let's talk about doing the second record, the In Vain. How how do you approach this differently? Because now you have a bunch of songs. You're going in. Is there something different you're trying to do here? Or are you just trying to pump out more killer tracks? Um, you know, when when we went in the studio, and I think Jeff wrote most of the music on In Vain. Um, and when we went in the studio, we wanted something bigger, like a bigger sound. And obviously what we got was Step Back. A lot of people love Step Back. And they, I mean, I've gotten more positive responses on Step Back than on In Vain. You know, In Vain was a little bit overproduced. and But we wanted we wanted that, I guess. We wanted a bigger, produce, more produced sound because we got such a crap recording on the Step Back record. So I think it was just natural for us to want that. I, I don't know that it did us any justice, though, because I think that it wasn't as well received as the first record. But uh, we went in looking at more of a, a heavier, kind of a harder approach. Um, we loved like, you know, we loved like uh, Killing Time. And I, I loved like uh, Raw Deal and, and, uh, and Leeway. And I love those bands. And, and Jeff had a lot of other similar tastes, you know. And, and we went in wanting something a little heavier. And so uh, going into that, into that recording session, we kind of had an idea what we wanted. And it, it really, I don't think it completely came out the way we wanted it as far as production. Uh, we, we wanted, I think it came out too clean, way too clean. I want us, I still wanted some distortion and some noise and, and it just came out a lot cleaner than I had hoped for. I wanted it a little bit more rough and uh, it, it was an experience. Uh, you know, the second album, I, you know, I, I like Jeff had said, he, he said he was kind of on his way out on that recording. And we had, there was a lot of bickering in the studio during that recording too. We had a lot of bickering going on and it wasn't the, uh, wasn't the best experience. And I've been in the studio a, a bunch of times with bands and, and I've, you know, uh, they've all been real positive experiences except for that one. And it was a bummer because we were in, you know, Brett Gerowitz's studio, you know, where this is where Bad Religion records, and this is, you know, this is supposed to be special, and it just wasn't, and uh, am I happy with the record, the way, you know, I, I love the songs, um, just wasn't, uh, it wasn't a real uh, loving kind of uh, cohesive unit at that time. I think that's the interesting thing you bring up the Killing Time thing, because that's what I pick up a lot, you know, <clears throat> is like that, like the, where the wild things are vibes creeping in uh -huh. here. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like I like this record a lot. So that's cool. Yeah, it was, it was different <laughs> for us and, and uh, put some, uh, some funny little melodies in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool. I mean, I mean, it is different than step back and listen, but it's, it's nice. Like it's a shorter chunk of music and there's a lot here. It's, it's pretty yeah. rad. Um, yeah. Well, I, Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's talk about, so Jeff leaves, like, how does that feel? Like that has to be kind of weird. Cause you've been in bands for like five years now, basically. Yeah. Have, I mean, how long have you been doing bands? You've been doing bands like 20 years now or so. Yeah. Yeah. Like 25. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, it's like a relationship, you know, I mean, it's 
like all these guys I love. I love all of them. Even the guys that I, you know, had run-ins with or didn't get along with so well, I still love them. If you're, it's a relationship. We're a family. And so when Jeff left, that it, it, was a, it was like a sock to the gut, you know. I kind of I, – I can't say I sensed it coming, but I just had a weird feeling. And, and like I said, it wasn't a real cohesive unit in that studio when we were recording that. And uh, so I kind of sensed it coming, but I didn't think he would actually leave. And, and when he did, it was like somebody took the wind out of me, you know. And, uh, I'm, and we're still close today. Uh, for a long time, I held some resentment, and I was pissed off about it. But, you know, you can't be pissed off about somebody wanting to do something different. And there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I, it, you know, it took me a while to, to grasp, grasp that, you know, concept. But, but uh, we're, we're great fans. We, you know, we talk all the time. And, and he sends me stuff. He goes, hey, man, this is, this, I played this, and this is a VD riff. I know it is. He goes, let's go record this. And so we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll exchange shit back and forth. And, like, I'll, I'll send it to Steve and go, check it out, dude. Write some parts for the song. We're gonna fucking we're gonna go to the studio, man. We're getting the band back together. <laughs> and uh, so we, I mean, we always reminisce and we talk back. And like when you had interviewed Jeff on the pod, I uh, I was listening to it, going, "Oh man, I'd forgotten that. Oh, I forgot that too. And oh man, you know, just and I know you're gonna pull it out of people. You know, I know you're gonna pull stuff out of people. And and uh, listen, hearing him tell the stories and like. It just it was such a cool feeling, you know, like we reminisce and talk all the time. And, oh, remember when this happened? Remember that show when this happened? And, and we laugh, we, we joke around. And, but hearing him answer the questions you were throwing at him, it was so cool to hear because it, was, it wasn't our normal banter, you know. So it sounded different. It sounded new. And, but it was, it was an exciting interview. I, I learned it. So, yeah, yeah we, we, uh, it was hard losing him. And I went to a lot of the core shows, their early shows. And, uh, you know, I liked their music. I, I, I saw where they were going, you know, what, what they're trying to accomplish. And I liked their music. And, and uh, they got great, great crowd participation in the early days. And then, uh, you know, so then they, you know, they took some, some breaks and stuff. So I, I kind of lost track of them. And I was kind of doing the family thing for a while and not involved too much in the music of the, in, you know, early 90s. Um, like 93, 94, I wasn't doing a whole lot. <clears throat> and I think that's kind of when I'm kind of taking a short break. And so I'd go to a catch a show once in a while, but not all the time. And so I kind of lost track of where they were at. And uh, they were using Artie Davies, who recorded on the uh, In Vain album. And so he he was playing with them and still playing with VD too. And, uh, and v, uh, Artie actually did the 7-inch with us as well. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was hard losing the band because we had we were, we were well, the band was inseparable. All of us, we were always together, always. And then losing him, it felt like things just started to fall apart. How long do you keep the band together after Jeff leaves before you break up and then get back together to to do the seven inch? Um, I think we. Oh boy, I'm trying to think. I think the last show. Jeff did with us was in 91, like maybe, oh man, I can't remember what exactly what time, what part of the year it was, but I think the last show he did with us was with Agnostic Front at the Country Club. <clears throat> we played with Sam I Am. Well, Sam I Am didn't get to play. It was too many fights. Uh, 
but anyhow, I think I believe that was the last show. And then uh, we weren't together maybe another year before we broke up. And uh, so, yeah, I think about sometime in 92, we, we ended up deciding to, you know, we weren't having fun and we let's just uh, call it quits, you know, and see what happens. So at this point you do a, another band called prison and uh, you know, what's funny is I never knew you were in this band, but I've always known the burn prison split. And when I was doing my research for this, I was like, what the fuck? Like Tim's in this band. <laughs> what? It's insane. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So talk so about that, getting this band together. Yeah. I don't, it was weird because uh, we were only apart for maybe a year and a half or so, I guess. And uh, I asked uh, Steve, I go, Hey, let's, let's uh, get together and start jamming a little bit. And we had a few songs we were working on um, before we broke up and, I don't know. There was four or five songs that we were working on. And, and uh, so I said, let's get back together and uh, jam some of these songs. And, and so we got RD and, and we got uh, a different bass player, um, Tony Zentel, who was, you know, always around us when we played. Um, it seemed like whenever we needed a player, we got somebody in house, you know, like a friend or somebody that was, you know, associated with the band somewhere, either, it was always there or a friend that went to school with or something, you know? And uh, so we started jamming. We're like, this is pretty cool, but I don't think it's VD, you know, it's not VD stuff. And, you know, having a little break, come back, I guess you have a different, uh, kind of a different outlook and, and uh, you want something different, I guess, maybe. And so that was way different than anything we really had done. And so it, it was fun and, and uh, we kind of liked it and we were hit up. By uh, I think we were one of the only bands that Lost and Found didn't screw over. I mean, royally screw over. We we kind of got dicked a little bit, but not bad. And and he kind of held up on his end uh, what he promised. So, but we just uh, there were a few things that went wrong. But but overall, he did what he said he would do, and he sent us money to record that that CD, and we recorded at um, for the record which uh, at the time, a few people were using a really good studio, a little more money than we were used to. And, uh, but he, he sent us the money to record and we recorded it. And uh, it, it, we weren't, we were, we were proud of it, but we weren't really proud of it. You know, we were lack, lacking a lot of energy. We, it, it came out a little flat and uh, we just really couldn't put our thumb on it. We didn't know what happened and, it was just our energy level was a little flat on that record. And, and, uh, but we're still proud of it. I, I, I listened to it once in a while. I still dig it. Um, it was the first time I, I had written a full record without one single fuck on it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the F word, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, we're, we were proud of it. We dug it, you know, we liked it. And, uh, it's something I pull out once in a while to listen to, but not very often. Um, we played a few shows, um, maybe five or six, played a handful of shows. Uh, we really didn't want to. That's not what we wanted to do. We just kind of wanted to jam, record. And a couple offers came through. We're like, okay, yeah, let's play. And so we got offered to play with, um, oh, man, uh, Failure, which is that Tool sideband. Um, they were big, like in the Alice in Chains era, you know, like mid-'90s. They were like sure. little big. Uh, Maynard Krebs was in it and um, we're like oh man cool yeah and so 
we did that show. It was one of the first ones we did, and and failure ended up not showing. <laughs> so, but we played to a lot of people and people we probably wouldn't normally play to. So it was cool. Um, did Boston Sound try to bring you to Europe at all? They did not. No. Um, at, yeah. So I'll get to that in a minute, I guess. But yeah, no, they didn't offer anything like that. Um, they asked uh, for the rights to. They asked to uh, repress a discography, which was the two records, and we told them, "Yeah, go for it." And uh, they did that and came up with some corny, some corny shit. And we got the edge with the title of the the discography. Right, right. kind of corny and just kind of funky. But and he put us on a million comps. I mean, prison and the VD stuff. I mean, just uh, I was like blown away. They have all these comps, all these same bands. I don't know. I don't know how he made money on anything like that, but whatever. Yeah, it, it's cool though. Like that, we got the edges. It's cool. He went for it with like the whole Kogan colors. Yeah, and, like, yeah. Propping that photo. It's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was cool. I mean, we're like, okay, cool, whatever. You know, something else to put in the cabinet. You know, and yeah. But uh, and it, you know, it was long out of press, and Frank was okay with it, and you know, so like Frank, Frank really owns the rights to the music on in vain because he paid for the recordings. Um, but he's been real good about letting us do what we want with it. You know, um, we paid for the first recordings ourselves and then the prison stuff, you know, burned had, uh, paid for that recording. So he owns that. Not that we were, nobody's ever going to ask to do a repress. Of that. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird era, right? Because he is bootlegging so much stuff, but then some things he is trying to do legit, like the VD and then, you know, he's doing the prison thing legit. He was doing Ignite legit. He did Battery legit. It's just, uh-huh. it's so weird to operate in both those worlds at the same time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, you're on one hand, you're doing everything on the up and up. On the other hand, you're screwing people. And, I, I you know, I just couldn't live with myself being that way. But I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how I separated the two. He's <laughs> you know, a Jekyll and Hyde personality. I don't know. Yeah, on the split, do you have any idea if... uh did he bootleg the the burn songs? Because those are the songs off the rebuilding and the forever comps. Um, my, I, I don't even know. I, yeah. I would probably assume so, but right, right. But I, I don't know. No, it's that's why the, that's part of the reason why that seven inch is so wild. Is like, okay, here's two like definitely legit songs because they do a record on Lost and Found and two burn um, seven inch comp songs. It's a weird mashup. Yeah, yeah, I. I don't know how that came about. He he didn't even ask us. He just did it. <clears throat> sure. So uh, so in the history of like punk and hardcore, there's been like a handful of great comeback albums. You know, Bad Religion Suffer. There's a, I really like the Youth Raid album, uh, To Sell the Truth. Of uh-huh. course, Descendants Get Back Together, Everything Sucks. Yeah. But we got to agree, the greatest comeback record of all time is this visual discrimination serial killer seven inch good god man like what a wild right turn right like you take some years off you come back and you're like yeah we're ready to rip your face off what's up it was yeah and and, you know we got it it was wild because we are writing just like it was weird to just hit a different style you know and, and we don't know why it wasn't something we tried to do. It just happened. And, and that was some of the stuff we were working on when we formed prison. And so 
we just continued kind of in the vein of those songs that we were working on before the prison stuff happened. And uh, so some of the softer stuff obviously went to prison and the harder stuff went to that seven inch. And we, we, we recorded with uh, Rusty from uh, Le Shock, Rusty Cavender. Sure. And he worked at Zez and we were friends with them. You know, we, we knew him for quite a while and, and uh, we were looking for a studio to go to. And we just, I, I don't know when I mentioned it to him, but he goes, Hey man, you guys can record at my house. And I'm like, you have a studio? And he was like, yeah. So I go, shoot, I, what do you charge us? He goes, I don't know. Just, just I'll charge you a hundred bucks for the day. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, okay, let's do it. So we got in there and we recorded those uh those five songs and we're like wow man it was just everything was going perfect and it was just a it was a uh 16 channel uh board and and there was it was only a four piece that time andy green from 46 short um he was uh and green records he he played bass on that seven inch and then it was steve winders on guitar and rd on drums and uh so I guess we really didn't need a lot of tracks and, and it was inside of a one car garage and he had all the uh, cables stretching from like a detached one car garage over to through a window into a bedroom where he had his board set up. <laughs> and so it was crazy, man. Just the way it was set up, it was so crazy, but we were so happy that day. Everything was going great. And I, I, I got to say it was one of the better ex- recording experiences of my life and how, how it came out so angry and, and it's just violent, and I, I don't know what happened. It was weird. But R.D. did a lot of the mixing on that. Um, and R.D. at the time had been playing a little bit with Infest, and uh, he had played a lot with uh, that band 16. And so he was into the real heavy, super ultra-fast stuff. And and so he did most of the mixing on that. And and while he was in farting around with the, with the board, Steve and I were in the garage, and uh, – I said, Hey, I got this idea, you know, and he goes, what's that? And I go, I got another song. And he goes, well, we're done. He goes, you want to record it now? We're done. And like, and like Andy had pretty much hung everything up and was loading out, you know, and, and I was like, wait, 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 me and Steve were working on something. (laughs) So I just kind of hummed to Steve how it went. I said, and I told him, here's the lyrics. And he said, okay. And I'm going, and I'm trying to hum him the part and kind of tell him how the lyrics go. And, he goes kind of like this. It took him a couple minutes, but he goes like like this. And I go, yeah, that's it. Boom, that's it. And so we started. He started playing it, and then so Andy Green's like, huh? So he starts hooking his bass stuff back. And so I was playing it, and Artie's in the house. He goes, "What are you guys playing?" And we go, "Oh, we're writing a new song." And he goes, "I'll be right out." <laughs> so we we just start jamming, and, and Rusty lets the tape roll, and. We go in and listen to it a little bit, come back out in the garage. I think we had that song written and complete in about 35 minutes. And it was uh, Solutions from the Reality Comp, Reality Comp Part 3. Yeah. So that, I think, is our most brutal song ever. And we're really happy the way with everything turned out on that. So and it just, wasn't, it just wasn't super produced. It wasn't – I don't think it was ever repressed. I mean, he did 1,000 the first press. It was uh, with Deep Six. Um, he did a thousand on the first press and then he pressed 300 on colored vinyl that he just gave us. Here you go. <laughs> it was way later in the game. It, it later, you know, a couple of years later, he goes, Oh man, you want to press some more of those doing on colored vinyl? Yeah, sure. And he did like 300 copies and sent them to us. 
so cool. We're like, wow. Yeah, Bob, one of the great guys, one of the greatest, nicest guys in the hardcore scene. Yeah, that was a really cool label for that time. And you guys fit in really perfectly of just like yeah. enough of like the old school sound, enough of kind of like that putting your foot in the, I don't know what that would be, like power violency sound. Yeah, and, and I never I never saw us going in that direction at all. And, and it just happened. And I mean, we're very pleased the way it went, you know. It, it, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a surprise to us, us as well, I think, as everybody else. Yeah, so cool. Um, we should talk about you, you playing in final conflict. And Uh I think this is, this is like maybe the most underrated California hardcore band of all time. You know, like all their output is excellent. Do you think they they don't get like the credit they deserve? You know, yeah, I, I don't, I can't say if I, if they do or they don't, I'm not sure. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you for sure, they're like we we all everybody in our band loved them. We played a lot together. It was a band that we really looked up to, um, a band that we really liked. Uh, nonfiction, we were doing that. We were trying to, you know, hey, let's do the Final Conflict thing, man. That's great. It's hard to pull off. Jeff Jeff has got such a unique guitar sound, and it's just an incredible sound. And uh, and that band as a whole, just the way they blended everything together and Ron's a great front man and he, he commands attention and he's well-spoken. I mean, he, uh, he, yeah, he just, he's a, he's a great singer, a great lead, lead man, a great front man. And the band, in my opinion, are, are one of the best Southern California bands ever. And, uh, I just love this. I love the shit out of all those guys. Uh, they, uh, I got, I was in the house one day and, and uh, Jeff had called and I hadn't talked to Jeff in a few years and he called and he said, Hey, he goes, Tim. And I go, yeah. And he goes, you know, this is, and I went, no. And I mean, he sounded familiar, but I'm like, no, he goes, it's Jeff. And I go, Oh, didn't just clicked. Well, Hey Jeff, what's up, man? How you been? And he's like, Hey, you know, I, I called to ask you something. He goes, my kid was playing this record in his room. And he, he's like, I heard this voice. And he was like, wow, man, like, that voice would sound good on this record, you know? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, he was listening to your seven inch and I go, Oh, okay. Yeah. He goes, so I want to go in and record an album. I I want you to sing on it. And I was like, Whoa, (laughs) are you sure? (laughs) Because I mean, that was one of my, I mean, some of my heroes, you know, even though Jeff and I are real close in age and, uh, and Ron's younger than me, (laughs) but uh, they were some of my, you know, punk rock heroes. And I loved them. And they were, you know, from the same kind of neighborhood, same neighborhood as us, really, you know, within a couple miles of us. And, and uh, so, yeah, getting that call, I I was on cloud nine. (laughs) Yeah. How did it feel like hearing the songs and then how did you approach like singing for them? Okay. Like on most of, most of Final Conflict stuff, I think Jeff writes like 99.9% of the music. And I'm pretty sure he wrote, writes most lyrics, too. Um, so he had lyrics written for a bunch of the songs on that record. And he, and he didn't have... He had, a, he had a couple that were unfinished. And, and then a couple that didn't have lyrics. And so getting, getting in and hearing the music and writing the, writing the lyrics, um, for, for two songs, it was fairly easy. What that was harder for me to finish his songs, you know, that was the hard part because I didn't really know where he was coming from. 
So that was the hard part for me. But but overall, just listening to the music and and putting the lyric, you know, the lyrics to the to the music was was simple. I mean, Jeff Jeff's a master at at writing music and lyrics, and it was uh, it was amazing to even be in the same room doing something like that. Yeah, how do you feel about the final the the final CD? Um, I love it. I love I love that I love that record. I love the CD. I, w- I wish it would have been pressed as record. I wish it would have been on vinyl. Yeah. And uh, that was SOS Records. That was uh, Ezot from uh, from uh, Spanky's Cafe and Showcase Theater. Right. He that was his label. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's all he was doing with CDs or or not. But he was doing a lot of stuff. But, and uh, I was just surprised that it didn't come out on a on vinyl. I really wanted it to. It's just I like vinyl better because it's a better, it's a lot better packaging. The visuals are a lot better, and uh, and an LP lasts where the CDs don't last. Yeah, it's a timeless format that's like survived. Right. Yeah, he right. he's he a CD only label except he did one. Uh, he did one maybe Total Chaos seven inch I think. Let me check. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, but but for Foley and all CD. Wild. Yeah, I I you know I don't I don't know I I just really wanted that to be on vinyl. And uh, it was a, a great experience for me. Unfortunately, um, you know, I was going through some rough times, rough patches at that time in my in my marriage, and I was having really, really bad health problems. So I was kind of I was kind of flaky, and uh, and I'm bummed because it, it you know it pissed off Jeff and hurt his feelings, and definitely the last thing I wanted to do, especially from a band that I looked up to for so many years. It, 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 it hurt, you know, it just, I'm, he was disappointed and, and pissed off at me and that, and just that alone hurt, you know, you know, but the, uh, it was my fault. I brought, you know, that's my fault. I, I, uh, was being an idiot at the time. And, uh, but I had, you know, I, I had major health problems as well. I ended up having a kidney transplant. Uh, my kidneys failed. We went to find a conflict, went to New York. We played CBGB's. About I don't know about six months before they closed, nine months before they closed, we went out there and played with Exploited, and, and uh, out there I was really sick and got home and I was really sick. And about a month later, I was in the hospital doing emergency dialysis, and and uh, I'd had kidney kidney failure since I was uh, twelve years old, so I I knew I had problems, and it just kind of hit about the right after we recorded that record, and then right after we went to CBs. It uh, hit me really hard. So, and I just wasn't keeping Jeff informed of what was going on. And it just, you know, I just basically walked away and, and flaked. And, and it, it hurt, man. It hurt me because I hurt his feelings. And uh, I saw him at a couple shows and tried to talk to him, but he didn't want to talk to me. And it kind of bummed me out. And Ron kind of played the uh, mediator for us and talked to him a little bit. And, and so he finally did open up and, and talk to me a little bit. And, but the relationship's not the same. I wish it was, but it's not. And uh, I love the dude. I love his family. They're great people. and really great people. And uh, the band is still amazing to this day. I I heard they were working on new material. I can't wait to hear it. It's going to be incredible. I know it will. Um, but yeah, so the experience of the whole, I mean, I was really proud of the record. I love doing it. And I'm really grateful that, that Jeff asked me to do it. And uh it was fun playing with him and it was, and playing with Shane from phobia. He played bass and uh, John Haddad played drums and 
he recorded it and mixed it and engineered it. And, and, uh, that was a, it was a good experience overall. Yes. Yeah, a killer record, you know, and, and maybe it'll get re-released at some point. Cause, uh, shit, people are re-releasing everything and that record rips. Someone needs to do it, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. What, what have you been up to musically since then? You got to fill in the last 15 years. <clears throat> well, um, Let's see. Uh, I, I've been doing a little, I mean, like I said, I was, uh, so I had kidney failure. I was on dialysis for like three and a half years and that doesn't really afford you any time to do anything, you know? And, uh, so I was on, you know, death's door for about four or five years and I actually died twice on dialysis and got revived. <laughs> and then, uh, I went through a divorce and asked you divorce and, uh, I've been remarried now for, uh, almost seven years. That's going great. Um, got younger kids now again that they're not mine, but to my stepchildren and I treat them like my own and they're good kids and I'm lucky. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so I got real involved in motorcycle clubs, you know, riding, riding Harleys and getting involved with some clubs and, uh, saw the, the fun side of that and saw the real ugly side of it. And, uh, so it kind of made me, I don't know, I wanted to start my own club and it, 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 it was going to be real hairy to do the way I was doing it. And because of some past things that happened with other clubs with me and, and as far as the club I was in for before and just, you know, you can't say too much. <laughs> it's just, That's it's fair. just needed to say really, really, really ugly stuff. And, and uh, I was going to start something new, which is hard to do. And, uh, my, uh, my, my, uh, better judgment told me not to do it. And, uh, I didn't do it, but I, you know, I have friends that I had mentioned it to and they're all Harley people. And one of them happens to be Buster Cates. And, uh, he was in a band called face value out here on the West coast. Um, he, he'd been involved with a lot of bands and he called me one day and said, Hey man, you know, you uh you want to do a band i was like huh I mean, that's interesting i mean because bd did play after that after that seven inch we uh we stopped playing for like 12 years and came back and just played a bunch of shows and it was just wasn't the same we played for a few years and said ah we're done <laughs> this is we're beating a dead horse and so you know after that you know wasn't doing anything for a couple of years and then he uh called and asked me to do a band with him he goes i got i got guys i got you know, the guitarist from Neighborhood Watch and Mark Conway. And I got this drummer, this young kid that moved down here from Seattle. He was in bands up there. And, and I said, oh, you know, I don't know. And I, I go, so he goes, I got a name for it. And I was like, what? And he goes, Manson Family Band. And I went, huh. <laughs> and it relayed back to some motorcycle club stuff. And I was like, well, since I'm not doing that, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> so the first practice we got together and it, it went great. We wrote three songs that day and I wrote lyrics for it. And I was like, this is great. And so we kept practicing and had a few lineup changes and uh, we recorded a four song, seven inch um, under Manson family band. And it was pretty well received. Um, I, you know, from all our friends and from different, you know, online zines and stuff. And, and, uh, we played a few shows and had things have gone pretty well. What we found out was that the, the name just wasn't, 
you know, trying to be edgy and, and trying to shock people and the shock value thing. It, it wasn't going to work with this name. Um, there were a lot of people offended by it. And, and really we're, we were just trying to give them something, put something out there, stupid, a shock, shock value thing. And, and, you know, really taking into account what Mansell was all about. We kind of realized that was, man, you know, as much shit as that guy was talking and, and the stuff he was into is probably not the best name to have. <laughs> we had a lot of, we had some hate mail from people and we're like, you know, that's just kind of a campy fucked up, you know, shock value name. And, you know, we see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. That band cake was really onto something. Like no one's a yeah. fan of cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so anyhow, yeah, we, we changed the name to must fight back and it's the same letters. And, uh, and so we're still writing the COVID thing really, really put a hamper on it. Um, we, uh, we were ready to go in. We had a date scheduled with Paul Miner at, uh, at uh, Buzzbomb back in March of last year. And then the COVID hit and we, you know, got spooked and we're like, Oh no, you know, we can't do this. So we got to wait. And so we haven't been really on a regular cycle of practice or anything with the band because we had two guys get COVID and uh, our bass player, and got it and he was pretty sick and then our drummer got it after him and he was sick but it wasn't like real bad and then i have a compromised immune system because of my tra- my kidney transplant so i gotta be real careful so if anybody's got the sniffles or anything right now you know come steer clear of it and uh anyhow yeah so we haven't been doing much we're, we're still writing we're, we're close to going in the studio and we've talked to paul and uh He's all for it. Yeah, let, let me know when. We're, I'll, I'll get you in here. And, and so I think we're going to do a full length. And uh, most likely it's going to be self-released. <clears throat> and uh, may have something up our sleeve on that. we got to talk to a couple people. But, uh, yeah, we have enough for a full length. The first 7-inch we did was, uh, was released on uh, No Records. And uh, that was recorded at, at uh, Paul's studio as well. Well, right on. It's just rad to hear people still doing it, you know, and still having fun with it. That's what it's yeah, all about. I mean, I mean, it's real. Yeah. Like when you said that, like, you know, I like to get together with the guys and jam sometimes. It's as good as the shows. I mean, that's how I feel, too. That's that's how I'm able to, like, do my band and why we've been around for, like, 18 years, you know? Like, yeah, it's, it's just fun to find that balance and play. Like, there's no reason to break up if you're making music with people that you enjoy. Yeah, Steve's in this band, Steve Winders. He's in this band, and Mark Blackledge, who's who was playing like the last leg of the last few years with VD. Um, he's in the band. He's a great musician. Him and Steve click really well, and they click really well with our drummer. And and so Buster Cates, he did uh, Positive Influence fanzine back in the mid-'80s, and, and so we've known him forever. And so doing this band together, it's really cool because we're, we're really friends first and it, and everything else is just, you know, icing on the cake and, and we're just having a blast with it. And, uh, you know, like we'd rather play, you know, something real tiny, like a tiny room than anything now, you know, and it's, that's fun. You're intimate. People are in your face and falling on you and tripping you and you're, you know, it's just, that's what we're into now, you know, just that intimate kind of scene and, you know, not that we're uh, 
playing anything soft by no means. <laughs> We're still playing hard and heavy and, and uh, a lot more metallic kind of edge to it, but it's real heavy. And, uh, you know, of course my vocals don't, not, I'm not a singer, so they're not going to change. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't get into or touch on? Um, no, not really. Um, you, 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 you do your research every time, man. I love listening to the pod and you always, you always come up with a question that stumps people and, you know, makes you uh, kind of pause and kind of think about things. And, and it's just enjoyable uh, listening and, and very enjoyable doing it. Yeah. I'm really happy to get you on. Finally, I've wanted to do this for a long time and you know, everything yeah, I, is, is so hard to organize things sometimes. You know, I know. Mostly I, my I fault. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I work crazy hours and I work crazy shift work and, and so, you know, a lot of times I don't, I can't get to practice because I'm working long hours, you know, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I just uh, <clears throat> really want to thank you for doing it and, uh, and doing all the people you interview. I mean, you, 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 you select all the right, everybody you do is the right person. You know I mean? You do your research and I, and I love listening to the questions and I can't wait for the answers. And I, and you know, I'm, I, I've got a question on my mouth and I'm just like right there. I'm going to ask him this, ask him this, ask him this. And you do, <laughs> or you might a little bit later, but you always do. And like, if I have an idea or if I know the person or the band you're interviewing, um, I'm like, Oh man, you got to ask him this. And, and the question always comes up. So you're doing a great job. I really love the pod and I really appreciate you having me. Well, I, I get lucky sometimes, you know, but I, <laughs> I don't I, think, I don't think it's luck. I think <laughs> you, you're doing your research well. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Tim, you feel like you've been well represented? Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Right on. 